Okay, good morning. Once again, thank you for joining me. And after a week off due to technical difficulties, we are grateful to be together once again. Uh, welcome once again to those who are joining me for the first time today. Uh, it's an honor and a privilege to be with you. Back when I was 18 years old, uh, I didn't have my own car yet, um, but I did have the privilege of driving my parents' car. Uh, now, it wasn't just um, uh, 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 an ordinary Honda. I, it, was a, it was a Honda Accord, but it was a really sweet-looking Honda Accord. It was a really nicer car than I should have been driving. And that's probably why I like driving it so much. It was a, a two-door coupe, so that made it feel a little bit more sporty than other cars. It had uh, leather seats. It had a sunroof. And best of all, it had a really sweet sound system. That was, that was a big deal back in my day. Uh, but, but here's the thing about that car. It was fairly new. When, when I drove it, it, it was great because it, it felt like a new car. The only vehicle I'd driven up to that point was the old family wagon, you know, the kind with the, the, the fake wood paneling, uh, which was also huge back in my day. Uh, that's, that's what I had driven to school up into that point. And it was just me in that wagon, me, three rows of empty seats, a roof rack, uh, fake wood paneling, and, and there was nothing cool about this car. In fact, to this day, my family refers to that car as the meatloaf. So that will tell you how cool it was. So when I, when I got in that Honda Accord, it was, it was pretty special. Windows down, sunroof open, stereo loud. And since it was newer, there, there's nothing quite like driving a newer car and, and how it handles. After you have a car for a while and you put some miles on the tires, I don't care how many times you go to get the wheels balanced, it never drives so smoothly as when it's new. I loved driving that car. Now, there was one day when I was in that car, I was on my way to a friend's house, and like a typical teenager in the middle of the day, I decided that I was hungry, and I needed something to eat right then. And so on my way, I spotted the golden arches, and, uh, and you see, that was my first problem. McDonald's isn't good for you in so many ways, but almost 30 years later, I remember exactly what I was hungry for. It was their cheeseburgers. You know the ones? The ones that come wrapped in that, that yellow paper? I had a hankering for two of those. I wanted two. Okay, now to pull into this particular McDonald's, it required a left turn, okay, a left turn across what I thought was two lanes of traffic. And those two lanes were, were bumper to bumper, and uh, I needed to turn to cross to get into that McDonald's driveway. And there was a break in those two lanes. The, the driver in the first lane, he gave me the signal to go ahead and go through. And the driver in the second lane stopped and told me I could cross in front of him as well. So I was clear to cross into the McDonald's. So I thought there was a third lane. And that third lane was a turning lane, so it was empty unless there was a car that needed to turn right up ahead at the intersection. And I didn't know that lane was there. I crossed the two lanes of traffic and I got to the middle of the third lane when I was T-boned in the passenger side by a big brown sedan, a meatloaf, another meatloaf, okay? Now, now thankfully, I wasn't hurt, nor was the driver in that other car. But the two-door sporty Honda Accord, it was hurt. It was hurt badly. I, I couldn't believe what, I, what would have just happened. The, the car that I loved driving so much was now unable to be driven. I was sick. I was literally sick over what I had just done to that car. I'd ruined it. And, and the way it went on the tow truck, and, and, uh, and what was I back to driving? The three-road, faux wood-paneled, roof-racked meatloaf. Would I ever get that Honda Accord back? Would I ever get to drive a car like that again, or, or would I be relegated to driving that wagon for the rest of my life? When Adam and Eve 
were placed in the Garden of Eden, God gave them very specific instruction. In uh, Genesis 1, 28, it says this. Sharing the screen here. And God blessed them. And they caused, and, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. You see, it was God's design that the whole earth would become a sacred space where, uh, where God lives. And among those, uh, he would live with those made in his image. So Adam's directive was what? To, to widen the boundaries of the garden until it covers the entirety of the earth. And what happened? He failed. It was gone. It was gone, just like that. The ideal was stripped away, just like the Honda Accord. The garden was, was stripped away from him, and he was banished to drive, uh, metaphorically, a three-road, faux-wood paneled station wagon. And just like my 18-year-old self, Adam was left to wonder if he'd ever be back to where he was again. So here we are, we're in this series entitled The Men and Women of the Old Testament. And what we're doing is examining these men and women and not just studying what they did. We're not just studying the narrative. We're doing a lot more than that. We're looking, at the sh we're looking for the shadows of, of Christ, the fingerprints of Christ in the Old Testament books. And why do we do that? Not just because it's something cool to do, but, but because in large part, the Old Testament in and of itself is a story that's incomplete, okay? The Old Testament uh, is made complete by what Jesus did in the New Testament. And, and he told us, he told us this in Luke 24 on the road to Emmaus with some of the disciples. And then later on, they, as they shared a meal together, he told them that everything in the Old Testament was appointed to him, to Jesus Christ. The gospel of the New Testament was the final cadence to what was set up in the Old Testament. Okay, it's like a song that needs to be resolved. It would be like trying to end a, end a song, happy birthday, dear whomever, and then just stopping there. Where's the rest? Where's the rest of the song, right? The, the, the rest, the song resolves in the New Testament. So we're studying the men and the women of the Old Testament to see how they point us to that final resolution in Jesus Christ. Now, even though a few moments ago I was talking about Adam in the garden, we're not going to stay on Adam. We're, we're going to talk about the book uh, and the prophet of, of Ezekiel. Now, now listen to the similarities here, okay? Listen to the similarities. Ezekiel was a prophet in Babylon, in, 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 the, in the land of exile. Now, why were the Israelites in Babylon? We've been in this theme within a theme uh, of, of exile, which again has matched up very tightly with, with what we're going through personally, because so, we feel like we're in, a, in exile right now. And there's lots of similarities, points of comparison. God had originally given the Israelites absolutely everything, okay? When, when God brought Israel together, he said, everything I'm giving you is a gift, your land, your national identity, your freedom, I gave it to you. So if you turn away from me and from my sustaining hand, you'll lose everything. Uh, but did they turn away from him? Did they lose everything? Yes, they did. They were exiled to Babylon. They turned away. So do you, do you hear the similarities between the Israelites and Adam? God gave them everything, and, and they turned away from him. They lost everything. It's the persistent theme throughout the Old Testament. But listen, this isn't just the, the, the theme in the Old Testament. It's the theme of humanity, okay? The same storyline is told us all throughout the Bible, okay? This is the precedent that Adam, that Adam set. Adam representing you, representing all of humanity, turned away from God's sustaining hand, and he lost it all, just like the Israelites, okay? Israel, and in, and in this case, the, uh, the southern kingdom of Judah, just like Adam, in Adam-like fashion, turned away from God's sustaining hand, and they lost it all. 
they were invaded by the Babylonians and taken into exile. After I'd wrecked that Honda Accord, they took it directly to the body shop. And, and uh, it's the Honda dealership, actually. And I remember calling my dad and telling him what had happened and where I was. My, my dad was, was very good to me, and uh, he was only concerned uh, that I was okay. He showed up at the body shop, and I remember his reaction, though he was trying to be muted about it and maintain his calmness, uh, but, but it was worse than he'd imagined. Because from the driver's side, it looked great. He approached from the driver's side, and it didn't look too bad. But once he came around to the passenger side, whoa. <laughs> I remember his reaction to this day, totally different story. It was completely blown in. But again, he didn't freak out. He was very calm about it. Now, since this was a relatively new car, that meant it was still worth quite a bit relative to the new car cost. That means rather than total the car, uh, between the body shop and the insurance company, they determined it was worth rebuilding. Honestly, I, I didn't see how it was possible. The damage just looked too, looked too great to me. And I would go in periodically. I remember I would go in periodically to the body shop just to see what the car looked like in the midst of the rebuild. And let me tell you, it, it only got worse before it got better. They essentially had to strip the car down to its guts. It only got worse. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't conceive that this car could, could ever be restored. And I managed to get a, a picture of this from... Uh, from my parents. Um, so I'm going to share that with you, what it looked like. This was in the middle of the, of the rebuild. It looked something like this. Look at that. Okay, so that, that right side of the car was completely blown in, and to, uh, just to start the rebuild, they had to strip it down to, to, to that, okay? Uh, and and, and when I, every time I went, I thought, how, how are they ever going to fix this? How is this ever going to be back to what it was? Why are they even trying to fix this? I was just so so dumbfounded by it all, it just looked like a complete and utter mess. And again, the more I would go in, the more discouraged I would get, okay? But uh, um, anyway, much like uh, Adam in the fall, right? Ever since the garden, uh, God has been at work to bring those he loves back to the garden, to rebuild it, okay? Uh, to a vast and more populated version of the garden, a better version of the garden. He's determined to bring the garden back to where it was and even more, more so better than it was. Think about this, okay? Since the garden, he called his people to himself and led them out uh, of the desert, okay? He led them out of the desert and then he, he built them a, a, had them build a, a mobile tabernacle to dwell amongst them. And then that tabernacle was followed by a more permanent structure that was a temple. It's like, it's like ever since the garden, he was only slowly but surely pulling his people back closer and closer, okay? But when we open up the, the book uh, of the prophet Ezekiel, the people of God were, were finding no comfort that the God of, 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 uh, of, of, uh, of all dwells in, the, in a distant temple in Jerusalem. That was no comfort to them. Ezekiel and 10,000 inhabitants of Judah had been taken 900 miles away from Jerusalem to live in a refugee camp outside of the city of Babylon adjacent to some drainage ditch or a drainage canal, okay? A lot of the people back then thought that this would just be a brief stint away from home. This is only going to be a little while, right? While others were convinced that God had just abandoned them there. So some, some of these so-called prophets had advised the refugees, don't even unpack. You know, this, we're only going to be here a little while. Okay, saying that they'd be back in Jerusalem before they knew it, yet Jeremiah, the prophet, back in Jerusalem, he was back in Jerusalem, he prophesied about the exile, and it would last 70 years, okay? And then God would bring them back. So things would get worse before they get better. It looked, it looked a whole lot worse. People couldn't conceive that things would be restored to what they were before, okay? And for a moment, 
Ezekiel might have even thought the same thing. By the eighth chapter, by the eighth chapter of Ezekiel, he saw visions that made it appear that things were getting worse before they got better. Okay, so unlike Jeremiah, Ezekiel is with the exiles in Babylon. And through a vision, Ezekiel was given a tour of, of what was happening back in Jerusalem at the temple. He was shown uh, the idol of a Canaanite goddess that, that stood up at the north gate of the temple. That's uh, chapter 8, verse 5. He saw 70 Israelite elders offering incense to idols in the temple. Okay, also chapter 8, verse 7 to 13. He saw uh, women weeping in a Babylonian fertility ritual, chapter 8, verse 14. He saw the inner court of the temple itself, where he saw men bowing towards the east, worshiping the sun, verse 16. He saw every kind of person worshiping every kind of false god right in front of God's face, okay? And so seeing all this, it began, Ezekiel began to get the sense that God was, was ready to move out of his own house. This is uh, Ezekiel 10, verse 4. Ezekiel 10, verse 4 says this. And the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the house. And the house was filled with the cloud, and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. Okay, the Lord... Uh, the glory of the Lord had moved to the threshold of the temple, okay? And if you're inside your house and you're walking towards the threshold, what are you doing, right? You're leaving. So, so this is what Ezekiel must be thinking. That's it. He's gone. He, he's really gone for good. God is leaving. God's leaving. I remember when I was a kid, uh, when I was uh, uh, young, I would threaten to, to run away from home. I, I, would, I would inch closer and closer to the door proclaiming, this is it. I'm really leaving. I'm not coming back. I'm running away from home. And do you know what my mom would do? She would call my bluff. She would say, okay, bye-bye. I wouldn't make it very far before I realized it was a, a dark and scary world out, out there. Mom, that's, that's not how this is supposed to work, right? You're supposed to be concerned and run after me. She was like, bye-bye. Ezekiel is much more concerned here as God approaches the threshold of the door. Sometimes things get worse before they get better. Now, again, I don't mean to give you all the details on, on what it's like to rebuild a Honda Accord, but the way that the Honda Accords were built back then was really kind of groundbreaking. They were built using what they call unibody construction. And that means the car didn't have a frame like most cars did back then. Most cars back then had a frame and the fenders and the doors and all the other parts were built upon that frame. And if you got in a wreck and, and damaged the frame, more than likely you'd have to total the car. Well, unibody construction doesn't utilize a frame. The car is constructed in such a manner where all the individual parts support and hold one another together. All the individual parts when mounted together hold the car together as one cohesive unit. So when you're rebuilding this kind of construction, you really have to tear it apart. As you saw in that picture, you tear it apart, remove and replace the damaged parts. And when it's broken down to a shell like that, it's still better than trying to have, have to uh, rebuild and repair the car, car's frame. And so again, I, I would go there, you know, periodically maybe once a week to look at the progress they were making. I'd watch and I'd go to see what they were doing. And, and uh, I got to the point where I didn't want to go back <laughs> because it was so defeating. It's, it's never going to get better, right? It's never, look at it, it's a mess. But slowly, slowly but surely, it started to take its shape again. Once they essentially removed, as you saw in that picture, once they removed that right side of the car, they even had to take a lot of those interior parts out, but slowly, but slowly but surely it started to take its shape again, and it began to ever so slightly look like a car again. And it started to take the shape like it was supposed to take, okay? 
back over to Ezekiel. This is Ezekiel eleven twenty-two to 23. And it says this, Ezekiel eleven twenty-two to 23. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of Israel was over them. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. So what's happening here? Okay, I referenced this uh, in, a, in an email last week uh, that a lot of people associate a wheel with Ezekiel, probably because it's in an old gospel song, something about Ezekiel and the chariot wheel, right? It's, it's not just that the glory of the Lord left through the threshold of the temple. He's left the building. He's out, okay? But what's he doing? He's left the building and he's headed east and stood on the mountain. What's up? Where's he going? Where's he going? Okay, so if Israel and Judah is on the, the east, uh, is on the, the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, uh, where were the Jews exiled to? Where was Babylon, Babylon situated? It was situated to the east. They were exiled, removed from their home, and sent to the east. The Lord had left Jerusalem where the temple was. He's approaching the threshold of the temple, headed out of the door, and headed east. Where is he going? Where do you think he's going? He was moving the focus of his redeeming plan of grace away from Jerusalem, where his people had turned from, from uh, God to idols, toward the faithful remnant in exile. You see that? This is, this is Ezekiel uh, eleven seventeen to 22. Ezekiel eleven seventeen to 22. Therefore, Say, thus says the Lord, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries where you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel. And when they come there, they will remove from it all its detestable things and all its abominations, and I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. So do you see what, what, uh, what Ezekiel is saying here? He, Ezekiel, who once thought that his ministry was done because the temple was an abomination, he's revealing to us here that the saving purposes of God were not in Jerusalem, but right there amongst the exiles that, by that, that drainage canal in Babylon. You see, he's revealing to us in Ezekiel, this book, that the saving purposes of God were not in a temple, not in a building, but where? Amongst the people, okay? Again, how appropriate for considering how we're assembling right now. His dwelling place would be amongst the people. And, and, how, would, and how would he go about this? How would he make his dwelling place within the people? Ultimately through who? What's the answer? What's the answer? You know the answer. Through Jesus. Happy birthday to you. There's your final cadence. That's your final cadence. Have you, have you ever heard of Jesus referred to as the second Adam? And this is appropriate because of, of where we're going in our next, uh, our next series. Uh, it's going to be focused around the, the actions uh, of Jesus. And so we're moving from uh, Israel, who was a type of, of Adam, okay, it was a type of, of, a, of son of God, right, into the second Adam. We're moving into the second Adam, uh, talking about Jesus, okay? And have you ever, and if you've heard of people refer to or, or uh, theologians, teachers, whomever refer to Jesus as the second Adam. It comes right from the Bible. Uh, this is from 1 Corinthians 15, 45. 1 Corinthians 15, 45 says this. Thus it is written, 
the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit, okay? So this idea is based on the thought that Adam was your perfect representative in the garden. He did what you, he did what you would do, okay? God offered Adam everything and said, you can have everything in exchange for your obedience. And what did Adam do? Did he obey or disobey? You know the answer there. He disobeyed, right? And we say Adam is your perfect representative because we, we, we do the very same thing, right? Is there anyone who doubts they wouldn't have done the same thing under the same conditions? It might, it might feel a little far removed when we start talking about the garden and a tree with fruit and a serpent, but really it, it, we're no different, are we? God offers us blessing conditioned upon our obedience, and, and do we obey or disobey? We disobey a lot, much more than we realize. Adam was our perfect representative. He offered fellowship with God in exchange for his obedience, and he failed. Now, to restore his people, Jesus had to become the second Adam. That is, he had to become, he had to come in our likeness. He had to come as man, as our perfect representative, so that he could obey God perfectly and succeed where Adam failed as our representative, right? He did the things that you couldn't do. He was obedient where you couldn't be obedient. He perfectly obeyed God as your representative, all right? And after his baptism, Jesus was driven. There's so many points of similarity here, right? Look at the first Adam and the second Adam. Jesus was driven into the wilderness. This is right after his baptism where he faced the serpent, just like, Ab uh, just like Adam did. The first Adam was tempted to rely on his own wisdom and abandon God's will. The second Adam also tempted to abandon God's will, right? Satan tried to get Jesus to provide for his needs contrary to God's direction immediately and without the suffering on the cross. He wanted him to bypass it all. However, unlike the first Adam, right? Jesus overcame Satan's temptations, setting the stage for Satan's final defeat on the cross. You see that? You see the, the, the comparisons and similarities between the first, uh, first and the second Adam? Both serve as your representative. Both stand in your place. The first Adam says, I'll do it my way, okay? Just, just as, uh, as, uh, as, as you would have done. The second Adam says, I'll do it God's way, just as you should have done, Okay. So not only did Jesus live the perfect, righteous life that you should have lived, that you didn't live, he died to make atonement for the sin that you committed as well, all right? So, so think through this with me here. Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life, right? So why did he have to go to the cross? Why did Jesus have to go to the cross? If you had a friend who asked you that, what would you say? Why did Jesus have to die on the cross, right? What's the point of that? It seems so gruesome. It seems so violent. Remember, Jesus is your perfect representative. He represents you in his righteousness, but he also represents you in judgment too. So not only does he live a, a righteous life on your behalf, but he absorbs the sin, the punishment that, that, uh, that you should have paid for as well. He absorbs that too. You remember what, uh, what Romans 6.23 says, right? You remember what that says? Let's make a special note of what the first part of that verse says. Romans 6.23, I bet many of you already know what I'm about to say here. For the wages of sin is death. That's Romans 6.23. What does that mean? That means whatever sin you commit, what's the penalty? It's death. No matter how big, how small, the wages of sin is death. What that also means is that God doesn't just look at your sin and say, well, he committed a sin. I suppose I could just forgive him and move on. No, he can't say that, right? His perfect justice requires that he does something with the sin. It can't just disappear. It can't just, it can't just 
vanish. It has to be placed somewhere. Someone has to pay for it. So when you sin, he has to place the punishment for your sin somewhere. It's supposed to go on you, but instead, where does it go? Where does it go? It goes to your perfect representative, Jesus Christ. Your punishment is placed on his shoulders. He lived your, for your righteousness and died for your sin, representing you on both fronts. See that? I think in all, it took about two months, maybe more. I don't, I don't quite remember. It just took a long time, but eventually I went to the body shop and I picked up the car and, and I couldn't believe it. It was as good as new. It, it was literally in better shape than before the accident because it had, uh, before the accident, it had like teeny little nicks here and there uh, and, and maybe a small door ding on the side. Well, now it was flawless. It was perfect again. There wasn't a ding, nick, or scratch to be found. It was perfect. It looked uh, something like this. This is afterward. There it is. Good as new. I mean, it was flawless, and they shined it up perfectly. You would, you would have never known anything had happened to that car. And I remember driving it home, thinking how smooth it was. And I was petrified. I was petrified that I was going to wreck, wreck it again just on the way home. You know? And when I got home, I, I parked it in the garage. I came inside, and believe it or not, I'm, I'm such a baby, I started bawling. I started bawling. Why? Because it was all okay. I, I never imagined that it could all be put back together again. And there it was back in the garage, just as it should be, better than it was before. Though it had been totaled, you know, I thought it had been totaled, there it is, back in the garage, good as new. The irreparable damage, so I thought, that I inflicted in my parents' car was erased. It was undone. It was made new again. In, in perhaps the most famous section in Ezekiel, God tells Ezekiel, to preach to dry bones. This is Ezekiel 37, one to six. Ezekiel 37, one to six. The hand of the Lord was upon me and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them and behold, there were very many on the surface in the valley and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, oh Lord, oh Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, oh dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to those bones, to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and I will, and I will cause flesh to come upon you and, and cover you with skin and put breath into you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. He's telling Ezekiel, look around Ezekiel, where you only see death, where you only see a complete absence of life. Guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to breathe life into where, into where there was no life before. Now skip down uh, to verse 12, where it says this, verse 12 of chapter 37. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, 
and I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Do you see what's going on here? This is amazing. He's weaving back and forth, in and out of the metaphor, and back to the shadows of the New Testament. Yes, he's talking about bringing his people back into the land of Israel. Yes, you'll be returned from exile. But what else is he talking about? That he will open your graves and, and raise you from the graves of my people? If you were reading about this at the time that, that, uh, that he wrote it, you'd have been thinking, what in the world is he talking about? We just want to go back home. What open graves? Is he really going to do, to do that when we, when we head back home? You see, he's talking about something beyond returning to Jerusalem from exile, isn't he? He's talking about what it ultimately points to. And what is that? He's going to make you new again. Where there was no hope, where there was only wreckage and dry bones, he's going to restore and make you new again. You see, the second Adam is even now expanding the borders of God's sanctuary. He's gone out beyond the temple. His gospel goes out and the glory of God is spreading to every corner of the earth. And when we come to the, to the very end of the Bible, we read about the entire new earth. And it's not a man-made building on a, on a small patch of land of the earth. The entire recreated earth will be the temple in which God will dwell with his people forever. This is what we read in, in uh, you know, this verse, Revelation uh, 21, 22 to 23. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord, the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. See, there's no, there's no physical temple in this city, but there is a temple. God's glorious presence makes this city a temple. And unlike in Ezekiel's day, God's glory won't be confined to the perfectly constructed temple, right? It'll be, it will permeate all of, all of creation. And this is what the words of, of Ezekiel tells us. And what Jesus's reaction, uh, excuse me, what Jesus's resurrection was when, when his grave was opened up, this, this was the first fruits, okay? This is the first fruits or the deposit, the guarantee that God would do the same for you. The dry bones that had, breathed, that had life breathed into them, the resurrection of Jesus Christ serves to say, see, see what I can do? I can breathe life into where there was no life. And just as I've done with my son, this is what I'll do with you. I breathe new life into you and into everything. Okay, as a result of the work of the second Adam, I make all things new, restoring them to even better than what we knew in the garden. Better than the garden. That's the ultimate objective. And when we get there, it'll be better than the actual garden. Uh, let's open it up for some questions and see what comments you may have. Um, uh, if he can get to the body shop. Uh, that's, a, that's a good one from Tom. Tom Radcliffe wants to know if he can get to the body shop before uh, he gets to heaven. That would be nice, wouldn't it? Uh, from Lena, such good news. Just curious if the first Adam made all men fall. Wonder why the second Adam doesn't save all men. What a great question. That's one of the, the, the questions that uh, we've struggled with for all of uh, redemptive history. It's, it's why, not, why not all? Uh, why does God only save some but not all? Uh, ultimately, in a, if I had to answer that in a short answer, I would say 
I don't know for sure, but God knows, okay? But I do know this, that whatever his purposes are, I do know that God is perfectly just, okay? And there's not an, an, an iota, a trace of injustice within him. And for whatever reason, why he saves some and not others, that somehow that result serves to glorify him the most. And if that result somehow glorifies him the most, then that's the outcome that he's going to pursue, whatever glorifies him the most. Now, that may seem harsh to us. That may seem rather uh, difficult to swallow. But you have to understand it in this way. And I once heard Tim Keller give this, uh, this example, and it, uh, it, I think it's pretty appropriate. And it, it serves to it just a, sort of a base of comparison, just a, a hint of maybe what it, uh, why, why it is the way it is. And that, that one time, uh, I think it was in his book, Reason for God, he talked about the time where he had a, a nightmare. And in that nightmare, his entire family was, was, uh, was slaughtered. Uh, it was, was murdered, and it was just awful. And then when he woke up from that dream, the realization of of that that was not true, that that was untrue, uh, made him appreciate his family all the more. He went to his sons as they were sleeping there, his family, and he just, and he cherished them all the more because what that was, what had happened in his dream was untrue. And, and I think that's what God is, is alluding to us here, is, is trying to tell us here that the, 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 the suffering, the bad things, when they come undone, we'll be all the more grateful, we'll be all the more appreciative, we'll, we'll, we'll appreciate his glory all the more for him having undone the things that once scarred us, that once hurt us. There's glory to be found there. And, and that's how I would answer that in such a, uh, um, um, a, a short time of, uh, that we have together here. Uh, any other questions or thoughts or comments before, and I, I keep realizing that camera keeps uh, uh, pulsing and I apologize for that, I'm not sure why. Have to uh, use a different one next week. Any other final comments before we uh, uh, put a pin in this? If not, let's see. Uh, short version. This is also from Luke. Luke answering the same question from uh, Lena. Uh, Adam was exactly us, and so we all fall in him. That's right. To ask why me, he doesn't represent me, would be to act the same as him. Uh, we are not the same as Christ entirely, must be saved in him. So the question falls back to why uh, do all not believe unto him? So yeah, good answer. Good. And also, yeah, for, this is to everyone. Mallory also sending, sending this comment through. Uh, if you look at the New City Catechism, she just sent a link uh, from that, from the New City Catechism, and it deals with that exactly. So that's a, a good answer. And there goes that camera again. I'm sorry about that. Uh, so again, there we go. Good answer from Mallory for the New City Catechism to help answer Lena's question. Go ahead and click on that link, and I'll give you all time to do that before we sign off. So just log on to the chat there, hit that link, and that should be saved for uh, afterwards uh, once we, we sign off. Uh, but again, uh, I hope you all have a wonderful um, Memorial Day and uh, a restful time tomorrow. And uh, what we will do again, we'll plan on meeting next week, and uh, we will start our new series on the New Testament and uh, we'll put a proper title to it before then. I'll let you know what that is. And I hope to have you all here back next week. Uh, until then, uh, hope to see you again soon, whether it's online or maybe even in person. But until then, God bless you, and uh, we'll talk to you uh, soon. Um, we'll see you in worship in a few minutes, okay? Thanks again.